morning. Hear the word of God from Isaiah 11 and Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. And now from Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, 
do not be afraid. I bring you a good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see all of you today. I'm so happy to be able to gather together and worship this morning with all of you. I absolutely love the assembled, gathered people of God joining together to praise him and to delight in him. There's something so good, so sacred about those whom God has called to live life together, gathering in corporate assembly and corporate worship. It is so right that we do so. Today, our theme is peace. And that's a candle that we lit today, and that's what our scripture spoke of, peace. And peace is not... Something that um, back in the day, you guys guys remember back in the day this used to mean peace? It doesn't mean that anymore, does it? Right? What does this mean nowadays? Like, I feel like people do that for pictures, but I don't think they're meaning peace anymore. I don't know why I thought of that. That's just what I thought of when I thought of peace. Today, peace is an image in a a state that I want you to contemplate. Isaiah paints this beautiful picture that we read. I'm going to read it out loud again. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. I love that picture. So beautifully poetic. Animals that normally would attack and devour the other will lie and dwell without conflict. Going against their base nature is an image of biblical peace or biblical shalom. It's not just an absence of conflict or absence of war, but a restoration, a completion of what was broken, a put together of what was separate. I liken this idea, and for those of you guys who have heard this sermon before, I liken this idea of going from a dog-eat-dog world to a dog-eat-dog world. For those of you, and I, was, I wasn't going to explain this, but there are some people who might not understand what I'm talking about when I say that. My wife um, had troubles with um, American idioms, uh, and just because she's just not aware of pop culture, it's just the way she is. And there's this one in particular that like she used to say all the time, she would say, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And I looked at her, I'm like, are you saying dog-eat-dog world? She's like, yeah, like a dog-eat-dog world. I'm like, sweetheart, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And she said, why would it be a dog-eat-dog world? 
that's just wrong. It's just, why, why would you say that? And she liked the idea of a doggy dog world, like where there's puppies everywhere, and there's cuteness, and you get to roll around with little lab, labradoodles, and it's just nice and wonderful, and yay, dogs. I'm like, no, that's not what they're saying, sweetheart. It's a dog-eat-dog, it's cutthroat. It's, it's harsh. It's survival of the fittest. It's, you gotta put people down, you gotta go after it, you gotta, you gotta want it. And that's why I think this, this idea of biblical shalom is going into a dog-eat-dog world and turning it into a doggy-dog world. The idea of, of restored relationships in the world being as it should be. And to be honest with you, that's why I love this beautiful poetic reading that we read today. It was just, I want to live in that right now. I just want to sit in that kind of image of peace for a little while. I'm going to be honest with you guys, this week, I haven't really felt the whole peace thing. It's been a rough week, not just a week, honestly, it's been a rough few weeks. I haven't really felt this true completion thing. It's been hard. I've been struggling, just to be completely honest with you. I've, uh, this whole COVID fatigue and this new variant rising is crushing my spirit. You know, I read articles about more cases, it's going to get worse and hospitals going to blow up. I'm like, No more! I'm done, I'm tired. My, father, to be honest, my father's health has been a source of extreme frustration for me. Not just his health, his health could be bad, which it is, but his absolute stubbornness in dealing with it, just frustration. There have been a lot of hurts in our church. People in our church who are hurting and struggling. And I, I carry that, I feel that, and it's hard, it's not easy. Um, my wife and I have been struggling with decisions and what our son's education is going to look like. Um, to be completely real with you, I've been struggling with um, dealing with a hurtful world that I know my son is growing up in and experiencing some of that myself, watching people's interactions with my son. And, um, sorry, it's been hard. It hurts more when it's my son, you know, than if it's you. And watching people and seeing, just kind of living in that and just struggling. Because this world is a tough place. And peace sometimes feels kind of far away, doesn't it? Luke 2, 3, 13 and 14. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Isaiah prophesied about this coming peace and in Luke the angels announced it. But how do we live in it? What does it look like for us? How do we live in it now? Like I said before, true biblical peace isn't just the absence of conflict but it's restoration of what was broken. It's the completion of what is lacking. Peace is not just you and your neighbor no longer screaming at each other and threatening to hurt each other. Peace is actually you and your neighbor coming together, working together to make your neighborhood better. That's what biblical peace and shalom is. So then how do we have peace, guys? And the first thing I want to say is, is first, I believe that peace starts with the glory of God. Peace starts with the glory of God. Verse 14 says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace. And the first step or key to experiencing peace is first knowing God. Fixing your eyes upon him, seeing God for who he really is and giving him glory. I love, Josh said earlier when he's doing the candle lighting, he said, Jesus reigns. 
And I remember Danny in the midst of his pain and his struggle, he said, I just have to see and have to remind myself over and over again that I see Jesus enthroned. And we see first and foremost that God is worthy of glory. First, we need to know who God is. Have you ever had that one conflict in your life that affects everything else? I mean, for me, I, all could be going well, but this one relationship kind of like can make everything go negatively. For example, it's me and my wife. If I know my wife is upset with me, or if I've let her down in some way, it doesn't matter that I just preached an epic sermon, or my fantasy football league, I won my fantasy football league, or I just saw a cool Marvel movie. It just doesn't feel that great because I'm, I know I'm not right with my wife. And if we're struggling. But if we're super clicking, then may I feel good, right? Happy wife, happy life kind of situation. Now, my, let me just tell you this. This is probably not the healthiest way to feel. And I'm working on not making too much of an idol of my relationship with my wife. I'm working on that. Right? Making too much of an idol of my wife. But my relationship with her affects most everything in my life. How much more than so with God? Do you understand that if we get this relationship right, then almost the rest of it is like small potatoes, right? Do you get that the fundamental question of your life right now that you need to get to it, at the center of everything is your relationship with God, the creator. Do you know him? Do you have a real relationship with him? And as I like to say here at Waypoint Church, do you know that you're known and that you're loved and that you have purpose? Do you know that? Can you fundamentally answer that core question in your heart? Am I known? Am I loved? Am I ha- do I have purpose? Because in knowing God, do you answer those questions? Romans 5, 1, 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Do you hear that? That we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The most important need we have, the relationship that most needs to be restored, can be done so by the work of Jesus. His life of love, his death, his resurrection has made the way for us to have a relationship with God. God in his love reaches out to us in our sins in order to call us to peace. He offers us peace from the war our sins have waged against him. And he loved us so much that he sent his son into this world to redeem us. This season, Christmas, reminds us that God sent his son to this world to open the door of peace to our hearts, minds, and souls. Guys, I want you to understand this, that what happens when you do this kind of decision, this kind of Western Christian Billy Graham mindset of making a decision for Christ. Guys, honestly, all that's happening, what you're doing is when you accept the beautiful gift that God has given you in his son. When you accept relationship and your identity as a child of God, as adopted sons into him, is you restoring a relationship that was broken. I like it like this. My, I have a son named Hudson. You guys all know this. Most of you know this. My son Hudson was adopted. And what happened was we did the work. We paid the price. We filled out the paperwork. We applied. We went to the country. We received all the work. We did all the background checks. We did all the work to adopt him as son. My son now is just choosing to live in his identity as my child. It was all paid for him. It was all done for him. And my son now, Hudson, gets to stand up and gets to say, this is who I am. That's my dad. That's my mom. And believe me, when he says that, my heart melts over and over again. He gives you peace you've been looking for everywhere else. 
He forgives your sins. He replaces a place in heaven for you. Your guilt is gone. You have an eternal home. You have a new identity. The work of Jesus is he, you have peace with God. The payment was paid. You have relationship. You now know who you are. The restoration of what I was broken. The fact that my son Hudson came from a broken situation where he never, no child should ever feel abandoned, left alone. But my child Hudson felt that way. He was abandoned and he was left alone. But what was broken was made right. That's what Jesus does. What was broken is made right in him. And this changes everything. The first source of peace affects everything around you. When you know peace with God, restoration of your true identity as a child of his, that it's possible to start seeing shalom elsewhere. And the other elsewhere that I want us to start with is elsewhere within. Understanding peace within. Once we have peace with God, we're ready for a real peace within. However, it's not as easy as it sounds, is it? I mean, it's often difficult to feel peace in the midst of a sinful and tough world out there. You heard me today already say that I'm struggling with it currently. And I know that sometimes I struggle with inner peace. I know others do as well. And what I mean by this struggle or lack of inner peace is this worry, this anxiety, this fear that often creeps in and, and storms into your life. In John 10, 4, 1, read where Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, I liken this idea, this, this lack of inner peace to my heart being troubled. And I love how Jesus knows and speaks into this issue. He knows our hearts will be troubled. He knows that this lack of inner peace will happen. Even though we have righteous peace, we have a right peace with God. That changes everything. He still knows that our hearts will be troubled. And he encourages us in it. He, he wants us to know and to live and experience peace. Now we have this peace with God, but also in, in ourselves. If you look at Isaiah 26, 3, it says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. I love this fascinating verse of scripture. It's beautiful to read, lovely to learn. And I want you to take hold of this. This verse states that God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, trusting in him. And the word keep literally means to guard, protect, hide, we must not miss the importance of this word. It's God who is doing the protecting, the guarding, and the hiding of our hearts. Our minds are kept in peace by the powerful work of God. No, we're not kept from trouble, though. But we're hidden in the one who walks with us through trouble. Jesus did not keep the disciples from the storm, but he was with them in the storm and hid them from any harm caused by the storm. The storm could only do to them what he allowed, that he would only allow them to do. Then look at the word Perfect. That you'll be keep in perfect peace. Now I want you to know that the word perfect does not actually occur in this Hebrew text originally. Then you might ask, why did the translators put perfect there? They placed the word perfect in the text because of a, a, a pattern that Isaiah is using when writing this passage in Hebrew. The writer of the text actually put the word peace in the sentence twice. So it literally reads, you'll keep in peace peace those whose minds are steadfast. The word peace is written in the text twice, and then when something is to be emphasized, we occasionally repeat it. Like the song, you're, you're good, good father. You're good, good. You know? God's peace is peace, peace. His peace is peace squared. His peace is not like the world's peace. Remember that Jesus said, peace I live with you. Peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives, but do not let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. I give you peace. Jesus repeats his peace. He says it twice in the same sentence. He says, peace I leave you. Peace I give you. This is not just peace. This is good, good peace. This is peace, peace. This is perfect peace. And real quick, this peace I'm sharing with you is an inner peace, a sort of, of a living peace. 
Living peace is the calmness of the heart and soul in the midst of life's adversities and struggles. Living peace is the serenity of the mind despite fear and doubt and depression and temptation and all other attacks of our emotional well-being. Living peace is accepting that one doesn't have control over everything and that is okay. Now how does one grow in achieving this sense of living peace? It is first by turning your leaning or your thoughts toward God. Isaiah said, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. So that our minds must be steadfast. That word means to lean upon. Think of it like this. In order to have God's peace, peace, his perfect peace, we must form our thoughts by leaning and thinking upon him and his promises to us. To do otherwise is to quote my old pastor, Pastor David. He used to say, open the door to do otherwise, not to, to not lean your thinking upon God, is to open your door to stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. That's what he used to say. To do otherwise is to allow Satan to build mental strongholds which can, be, which can overtake and overwhelm our hearts. But instead we're to turn and capti- capture every thought and make it captive to Christ. There's one other word in Isaiah which is very important. Note that it says we're to trust in him. And this word trust is fascinating. It means to, it almost means, has a sense of almost to be careless. It means to lean upon without fear. It's almost to lean upon almost carelessness. Like when I sit down on my chair, I do so, I trust my chair. When I jump on my bed, I probably shouldn't do this anymore, but I still, like when I get into my bed, I don't like kind of ease into bed. I'm like, oh, bed, and I jump in. A careless trust that my bed is going to hold me up, which is probably not smart on my heart. But we're to trust recklessly. Trust such a, in such a way like my son does where I just tell him to jump. He doesn't care. He doesn't care how deep the water is. He doesn't care how high he is. If he sees my hands down there and I tell him to jump, he's going to jump. He trusts recklessly that his dad's going to catch him. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he spoke about peace that goes beyond understanding. You see this in Philippians 4. Here God promises to guard our hearts and our minds with his peace. But you look at that following verses, we're told that when we think as we should, that is fix our thoughts properly on him, we not just have the peace of God, we have the God of peace. That's what Isaiah is saying. When we see our minds are fixed in him, we have the God of peace to keep us in perfect peace. This is a double peace that's beyond understanding. This is exactly what the Bible says. It can't be explained. It can only be enjoyed. All those issues that are hurting and attacking my heart today, all my fears and anxieties, I bring before the God of peace. And he guards my heart. He keeps me. I frame my thoughts to him and his peace that trends all understanding. In other words, he himself, the God of peace, comes with me. He comes to me. And I have him, the God of peace. Now, this doesn't mean my fears and anxieties are gone forevermore. It doesn't mean that, that, that forevermore I never worry or never struggle with worry. No, not at all. It, it does mean that the God of peace is with me. And that I can have some measure of inner peace that can only come from a God that knows me, that loves me, and I can face tomorrow and I can face today. And some of you may be here today and saying, Lawrence, I hear you, I hear all that, but I don't see the complete peace that I long for. I still struggle daily. I'm in the midst of a world that is still struggling. I want you to hear this. It's into this same world of fear, danger, uncertainty, and suffering that God sent his son. When you look carefully at the Christmas story as told in the Bible, you soon find that the world Jesus was born into was a very uncertain and dangerous place, wasn't it? The circumstances of Jesus' birth brought hardship into the lives of those who first loved him. It wasn't easy. The angel's message to Mary 
become pregnant as a teenage girl? As a teenager, must have been like, what? I'm not even married yet. The news of her pregnancy upset her fiancé, Joseph, to the point of wanting to break off their relationship. He had to be told not to by an angel. The woman he loved now is pregnant, not even married yet. As the time grew for Mary to give birth, the Roman emperor ordered that everyone should return to his homeland, hometown for a census. Inconvenient, right? I mean, I imagine, it, I actually don't know, I should look this up, but I imagine it's not the closest walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem for a woman so heavily pregnant, but I imagine just a little walk is not a comfortable walk for a woman who is about to give birth, right? I remember my wife was 10 days late giving birth to Josiah. Any walk was not a comfortable walk. And when they got there, the place was crowded, nowhere to stay, in a barn, in a manger, where the animals were kept is where Jesus was born. The country where Jesus was born was a hotbed of dissent and insurrection under Roman rule. There was one bloody revolt after the other. We know that when King Herod heard that the king had been born, in a jealous rage and in fit, he ordered the murder of innocent baby boys. Mass murder. All over Bethlehem. As parents wept for their dead babies, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus escaped like refugees to Egypt. When we think of Jesus' birth, right, we think of pictures of cuteness and cute little animals. I have these manger scenes in my house right now. We have like multiple mangers. We have like the nice mangers, and we have the toy mangers, and we have the candle manger. Or, um, I mean, uh, we, have, we just have it all. It's all cute. It's all friendly, and we want kids to play with it. But it's, it wasn't cute. It wasn't friendly. There was mass murder. There was sickness and death. It's easy to get caught up in the charming and delightful image of the birth of Jesus, but in actual fact, it is God's deliberate plan that has suddenly been born to a world of fear, upsets, hurts, disappointments, trouble, poverty, hardship, and murder. We're told that the timing of Jesus' birth was not an accident. In Galatians 4, it says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law. It was God's plan that the tiny, fragile, and dependent new life not be born to a sheltered and privileged family, but one that felt the full force of destructive violence in the world. The world hasn't changed, has it? As we celebrate Jesus' birth today, we're well aware of the fear, the violence, the lack of peace that dominates our world and our lives at this very moment. It was intentional. It was into this world, into this setting, that Jesus comes bringing us peace. The angel saying, praising God for the peace that he had brought to earth through the birth of David, the birth of the baby in Bethlehem. But the birth of the Savior in David's town didn't stop Herod's plans. It didn't banish the Romans from Israel. It didn't stop hunger. It didn't stop homelessness. It didn't stop wars. It didn't stop rebellions in our world today. There's still sin and evil. And in our own lives, just because we're here worshiping the Prince of Peace today doesn't mean that pain and suffering and strife in our lives have been banished forever. Doesn't mean that cancer still doesn't take hold. Doesn't mean that we still don't get sick. Doesn't mean that people don't die. Doesn't mean that wars won't be continued. Doesn't mean children will be perfectly obedient and parents will be wonderful, perfect parents. We still live in a sinful, broken world. Now one day, one day we have this promise of Christ's second coming that the true and perfect peace will encompass the earth. The prophet Isaiah tells us what it's going to be like in, in Isaiah 11. The Bible promises total and complete peace where there will be no more tears. One day, one day all will be made right. A restoration of creation. That is what we celebrate in our Advent season. That Christ in the fullness of time came like he said he would. And one day he's coming to make all things 
new. But till that day, the peace that we have is this. Till that day is that in Jesus, God is with you when you're depressed and hurting. In Jesus, God is with you when you're sick and sorrowful. In Jesus, God is with you when you're feeling guilty and ashamed. In Jesus, God is with you when you're full of fear and worried about your safety. In Jesus, Jesus, God is with you when you face your day of dying. Our peace comes not just from having this arbitrary sense of well-being. Our peace comes from having relationship with the God of peace. Our inner peace comes because we have God. Not because we have absence of conflict, but because we have restoration of relationship. We have the one we were made for. So that whatever this world faces, whatever it throws at you, whether you face death or whether you you face car accidents or cancer, whether you face joblessness or homelessness, whether you face success and wealth, whether you experience famine and sorrow, your peace comes from the God of peace who is with you and it transcends all understanding. So that when you face it, you face it with a relationship and with identity with one that's with you forever and you can say confidently and boldly, Jesus reigns. My people, I know it's not easy sometimes living in this world. I know it's hard. I know there are moments in this time and in this world that you just feel overwhelmed when it feels like a little too much. The God of peace is with you. You're not alone in it. He's in the storm with you and he'll see you through it. He might not take the storm away, but he's going to use it for your good. And then one day, I promise you, one day, all will be made new. Till that day, will you hold on to this truth? Jesus reigns. God knows you. He still loves you. And he's called you to purpose. Will you accept that relationship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas season where we're struck with this weird conflict, this odd contrast, where we're faced with the, with, with, with the harshness of the world, yet we are hit with the beauty of what you're doing in it. God, we, we come before you asking right now in this place, will you fill us with your peace? God, will you be our God of peace who comes and transcends all understanding? Will you be with us as we enter into all of life's struggles? God, as we live in this tension place, this tension point, as we eagerly await your coming, God, show us how to be people of peace to the world around us. God, we love you. And God, we thank you for your amazing work that you've called us to a relationship to yourself that we can have you. God, we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.